I always have to think about what I'm going to say when I come up um, and make sure that I say you may be seated. I was pastoring a church in Saginaw years ago, and the worship team had been playing, and it had just been this beautiful, awesome time of worship, and I got up to preach, and I said, you may be dismissed. Everybody got way too excited. So I always have to like go over it in my head. You may be seated, not dismissed. That's right. No such luck. No such luck on your part. All right. Well, if you're visiting with us, again, I just want to say thank you for, for choosing fellowship today. We hope that you feel welcome and at home in our service uh, this morning. What a great way for us to start worship today and then to continue through singing. We right now, if you're, if you're new to us, we're doing a series in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you brought your own copy of the Word of God or your phone or however you would choose to look it up, you could certainly turn to Mark chapter 1. I will put the scripture passages on the screen as well if that is better for you. But let's begin this morning just by reading the Word of God together. Follow along with me as I read. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked them, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of our God. So in this passage, we see Jesus very compassionately revealing his authority in three distinct ways. All in the verses that I just read to you, we see him revealing his authority in his teaching, and we'll look at that. We see him revealing his authority over the spiritual realm, and we'll look at that. And we see him revealing his authority over sickness, and we'll look at that as well this morning. So first of all, let's start with the authority of Jesus in his teaching. Look back at verse 21 with me. It says, and they... The disciples and Jesus, those following Christ along with Jesus himself, of course, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Bible scholars believe that Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, 
was the home base for Jesus and the disciples when he was ministering in Galilee. Uh, Capernaum very simply means village of Nahum, and it's located, if you look at the map, on that northern side of the Sea of Galilee. If you look close enough, you might be able to, to spot it. It had a large fishing industry. I talked a little bit about this in a prior message. And this fishing industry would have fueled a lot of other business. It was a prosperous city. It was a good location to live. And as we'll find out, it's the home of Peter and Andrew and, and John and James. It's also uh, had at the very center of its religious life, of its spiritual life, a synagogue. And this is just an artist's uh, depiction or, or rendition of what that synagogue may have looked like. And there have been archaeological digs and things of that nature that would support this. A, a synagogue was not like the temple. I want to make sure that this is clear for you. The temple was only located in Jerusalem, and it was a lot bigger, and it was a place where worship would happen and sacrifices would be offered. Synagogues could be located all throughout Israel. Uh, there was a synagogue, for instance, in Jesus' Jesus's very small hometown of Nazareth. All you needed to establish a synagogue was 10 Jewish men who were at least 13 years old. So as long as you had 10 at least 13-year-old males in your town, then you could establish your own synagogue. This was a place of assembly. Uh, it's where the scriptures would be taught. It's where people, men and women alike, would go to learn. Uh, often, these scriptures would be taught by visiting rabbis. Uh, there might be a rabbi in that town, or your synagogue might wait for a rabbi who is traveling across the countryside to come to your town and to teach. And so it's not unordinary what we find in this passage. It's not strange that Jesus, who is already gaining a lot of popularity and respect among the people, that he would be asked to teach in the synagogue in Capernaum. So the Jewish day began in the evening, and the Sabbath was from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. And Mark tells us, as he uses, again, his favorite uh, Greek word, it seems, he uses this word constantly. It's the Greek word euthus, and we translate it immediately. That might be why you heard me say it like that, and I'll continue to say it like that, because Mark is trying to establish a sense of urgency, an urgency to this mission that Jesus is on, an urgency to this message that Jesus is giving. And so Jesus immediately, Euthus, enters the synagogue and begins to teach. Now, if you were to attend an ancient service in a synagogue, much like the one Jesus taught at, like me, you would understand nothing. <laughs> because I'm not a scholar of Hebrew, and I'm guessing none of you are either. And so we wouldn't understand what's going on, but we certainly would understand some of the elements that were happening, because they all had a similar flow, much like in our services as Baptists, right? We tend to 
oh, dare I say, I don't want to say fall into a rut, but we tend to do things the same for Sunday morning worship. We sing some songs, and then some guy comes out and preaches, and then we sing another song, and then we give a few announcements, and we say, hey, we'll see you next week, right? And so there's a structure and order to it, and it's the same thing here with what would have happened in this Jewish synagogue. The service would have included several different elements. It would have started with an opening prayer or a blessing. And then there would be readings from the Old Testament. Remember, at this time, the New Testament hasn't been compiled yet. And so there would be readings, maybe from the law or from the Psalms or from the prophets, but readings from the Old Testament. And they would read these both in Hebrew and in Aramaic so that everyone who was there would be able to understand. And then there would be a sermon. Somebody, a visiting rabbi, would get up after having read the text for that day in Hebrew and then in Aramaic. He would talk about it, and he would explain what the text meant. And then after that, there would be a closing prayer. It's very similar, very similar to what we do in many ways. So on this day, on this day, In the synagogue of Capernaum, Jesus leads the service. Can I just park on that for a minute? I mean, mean, can you even imagine? Those of you who, like me, who love Jesus Christ, can you imagine going to a worship service led by Jesus? I have to say, as I thought and prayed about this this week and and, and kind of meditated on this passage, I thought, to hear Jesus pray, to hear Jesus read the scriptures, and then to explain them. I mean, I would be the first one, and you all should definitely agree with me, that if all of a sudden a physical manifestation of Jesus Christ walked in that door and walked up here, I would take my headset mic off, hand it to him, fall flat on my face and worship, first of all, and then sit down in a pew and just be all ears. And I I certainly wouldn't be concerned about the time and when the message got over. Now, I'm not Jesus Christ, and so I certainly understand why you are concerned about the time and when the message gets over. But if Jesus were here, if Jesus were here, I don't think any of us would be concerned about that. Amen? It's what our heart longs for. It's what we desire. And I I don't mean to get hung up on that idea, but I guess I got hung up on that idea this week. You see, we believe by faith in Jesus Christ, and and because of that, Jesus said we're blessed. Do you remember what he says to Thomas after the resurrection? And, you know, Thomas is the only one of the guys who isn't there when Jesus appears to the rest of the disciples, and and they all tell him about it. say, hey, he's alive. He's alive. He, He... He rose from the grave. I I know he died on the cross and we buried him and and he's been in the ground for three days, but now he's alive. We've seen him. And Thomas says, hey, whoa, wait a minute. You know, no, come on. What are you guys talking about here? And Thomas says, unless, unless I see him, unless I put my hand in his side, unless I touch the nail marks, I won't believe. And Jesus then appears to Thomas and says, Thomas, come, look. Take a look, touch me, see. And, but then what does Jesus say after that? He says, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe having not seen. Who's he talking about? You guys. 
You have believed in the gospel, having not seen. And so we're blessed for that by the very words of Christ. But I got to tell you, I would have loved to have been there anyway. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen him. I would have loved to have heard him taught just to be with him. And I, like many of you, cannot wait to see him in person, to be with Christ. There will be many wonderful, wonderful things, brothers and sisters, about heaven. Many rewards waiting for us, eternal, abundant life, all of that. But the best part about heaven will be Jesus himself. Amen? Can't can't wait. All right, I took too long on that tangent. I got to speed up. Help me out here. Somebody throw something at me if I get going long-winded again. Mark chapter... (laughs) Who did that? (laughs) I'm keeping it now. All right, Mark chapter (laughs) 1, verse 22 says, that was great, and they were astonished at his teaching. So they react. Jesus is speaking. And the people in the synagogue that day were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Hang on to that idea for a minute. One who had authority and not as the scribes. So I I would imagine that Jesus preaches his message of the kingdom that he's been preaching throughout chapter 1. Mark doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us the text or the content, but I'm sure Jesus selected a passage that he could then expound on and talk about the kingdom that had come because he, the king, had come. And and he talked about that, and he talked about the need for repentance. Turn, O Israel, back to your God. And he talked about the salvation that he was bringing. I imagine that was all part of his message. Mark doesn't tell us. But what he does say is that those present that day recognized his authority. They recognized his authority. See, normally it was a scribe who taught. Now, if your Bible, like mine, I tend to study, well, with the New Testament, I study from the Greek, but with in English, the ESV is the Bible that I kind of usually go to. And here it doesn't do the best job with this word grammatus, which is the Greek word that in the SV is translated scribe, what you see on the screen. The, the translation here probably would be better, would be lead to a better understanding if you thought of a grammatus in the context of being an expert in the law, a PhD in theology, someone who had navigated through all of the levels of the Jewish education system, which was not easy to do. Kids, children who only made it through what would be considered their elementary school at this time, would have memorized the Pentateuch. What's the Pentateuch? The first five books of your Bible. Just take a second and glance through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Children memorized that in its entirety. That was basic Jewish education, right? Well, these grammatus, these teachers of the law, these PhDs, right, in theology, they did quite a bit more. They not only memorized that, but they memorized the rest of the Old Testament. And they memorized things like what's called the Talmud, which is commentary on the Old Testament. 
And so they had this great understanding of the text. Dr. Daniel Aiken writes, he says, this much respected and celebrated group of scholars trace their origin back to Ezra. Ezra in the Old Testament, you know him, he has a book named after him. Later called rabbis, they could render binding judgment on on the interpretation of the law. Many were Pharisees, though there were also Sadducees and priests among them. The Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish governing body, or as Dr. Aiken puts it, the Supreme Court, was made up mostly of scribes, of teachers in the law, of PhDs in theology. These were men who knew the scriptures backwards, forwards. You could start uh, quoting a passage from the Old Testament, and they could join right in, and then they would tell you what every rabbi for the last thousand years had said about that passage. Incredibly well-educated men. However, on this day, the people noticed that there was an obvious difference between what they normally heard from these PhDs in theology and the teaching of Jesus. And the difference was this. Jesus taught with authority. Now, what does that mean? Here again, let me explain to you what the word meant in Greek first. The Greek word here, exousia, is translated authority, and that's good. That's good, but it's really a... uh, a compound word put together from two smaller Greek words that really means out of substance. Jesus taught out of substance. He spoke out of substance. What the people realized that day is unlike the experts in the law who normally taught in their synagogues, Jesus did not just repeat what others before him had said about the text. He wasn't only a scholar, Jesus spoke about the text with the authority of God. He spoke out of substance or from substance. However, it seems that now the worship service is interrupted because now we see in this next part of the passage the authority of Jesus over the spiritual realm. So the authority of Jesus in his teaching and now the authority of Jesus in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 23 with me. And immediately, immediately, there's that word again, euthus, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this Greek phrase that we translate unclean or impure spirit, or your English translation might even have demon or or demonic there, but it it comes from the Greek phrase pneumatai akatharto. And and that's what it is. It's something that is completely unclean, something that is impure, but, but a spiritual force. The point is that the demon that is controlling the mind of this poor man causes him to make this statement to Christ. It compels him to go up to Jesus after he had been teaching in the synagogue and to make this phrase that you probably have translated something similar to, what have you to do with us? This is a Hebrew idiom. It's slang. It's a, it's a slang phrase in ancient Hebrew. The meaning is this, mind your own business. Get out of my face. I'm not saying that to you. Please don't be offended. But this is what this man who is being controlled mentally by this unclean, impure, demonic force 
comes up to Christ and says, get out of my face. You see, the demon is well aware. He's well aware of who Jesus is, and he's absolutely terrified by him. Uh, it was on that screen. Dr. R.C. Sproul wrote this about this verse. He said, he realized he was in the presence of the holy God. And nothing strikes more terror into the heart of creatures than to be in the presence of the holy. We will see this motif throughout the Gospel of Mark. When the holiness of Christ was made manifest, the immediate response was fear and dread. We, what is R.C. Sproul doing here? He's talking about us now too, because I don't think one of us in this room would claim to be holy. He said, we... Fear the holy because we are not holy. The demon truthfully here, truthfully identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God. However, notice that Jesus is not looking for his endorsement. He's not looking for the validation of demons. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. You see, church, with just a few words, Jesus reveals his authority over the demonic realm, and he frees this man of his captivity. Uh, Dr. William Lane writes about this in his commentary and says, the silencing and expulsion of the demon is proof of the judgment which Jesus has come to initiate. To have allowed the defensive utterance of the demon to go unrebuked would have been to compromise the purpose for which Jesus came into the world, to confront Satan and to strip him of his power. Jesus puts this demon in its place. He's not looking for his endorsement, and he doesn't give him the opportunity to speak. So what happens? Verse 26 tells us, And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Please notice that this is not like the exorcisms that the fictional exorcisms that you may have seen on TV and movies or television shows. Uh, there are no incantations. There's no formulas or things like that that Jesus says in order to get this demon to leave this man. He says the word and the demon goes running. Why? Because he has authority. He speaks out of substance. What happens next in the text? Look at verse 27 with me. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? They're saying, boy, he, he just got done talking about the Old Testament scriptures and, and there was something different about it, different than what, we, what we're used to. It's not like he just studied all these ancient rabbis and he's regurgitating it back to us. This guy really knows what he's talking about and he's speaking with authority. And then, and then this guy comes in who's being controlled by a demon and with a word, he expels the demons. We've never seen anything like this before. He has authority. He speaks with authority. Jesus doesn't need to go through a process. He speaks out of substance. Church, don't miss. Don't miss at the very first miracle that Mark records for us. This is the first miracle that Mark records in his gospel that it demonstrates the authority over uh, the authority of Jesus over Satan and his demons. This is significant, and this is going to be something that Mark is going to return to time and time again. Jesus came 
to the earth for many reasons. One, of course, as we all know, was to die on the cross for our sins and to pay the penalty that we could not pay. He came so that on the cross, those who would trust and believe in him for their salvation, he would extend his perfect righteousness from himself to us so that when the holy and righteous judge looks at you, if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation and God looks at you, he no longer sees your sins, past, present, or future, but he only sees the perfect righteousness of his son. Amen? He certainly did that. But one of the other reasons Jesus came to the earth is to kick that punk Satan in the butt and to defeat him. And this is what Mark is conveying here. He doesn't want you to miss this. And so he, he, had, he records this miracle first, the authority of Christ over Satan and his demons. Jesus and Satan are not equals. I hear people talk like this, church. We, we don't believe in dualism. We don't believe in this idea that there's good and there's evil and they're in a battle. Who's going to win? Not sure who's going to win between good and evil. We know who won, don't we? Good wins. Evil loses. Jesus is victorious. Satan is defeated. Our enemy is already defeated. Jesus is victorious, and he demonstrates his supremacy through his ministry, throughout his ministry. And, of course, he finalizes it on the cross itself. That's when the final victory is for sure. So, moving on with the verse, or with the text, verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And here we see the beginning of large crowds gathering around Jesus. As, as many people are going to come out to him uh, to either be healed themselves or to witness a healing. Finally, in our passage, just one more area for us to cover and then just some quick points of application for you this morning. But finally, we see the authority of Jesus over sickness. And look at uh, verse 29 on the screen. And immediately, there it is again, Euthus, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. The idea here is that he walked out of the synagogue and he walked right into their house. You might think that I am you know, kind of uh, making some assumptions from the text, and maybe I am a little bit, but I will tell you that arche biblical archaeologists believe they know where this house is in Capernaum. They, they know where the synagogue is, for sure, where it was, and they know, they believe where this house was and that it's very likely that it was Peter's house. That's kind of neat. And so there's, there's archaeological evidence for this, that Jesus walked out of the synagogue and walked right into Simon Peter's home. Jesus and his disciples leave the synagogue after this incredible worship experience that ended with a supernatural event. I mean, can you imagine if that happened in church today? <laughs> we would be pretty excited about that. If we had this, just this mind-blowing uh, time of worship together, and then God did something miraculous right in our midst. That's that's what they're coming from. Don't miss that because there's a transition about to happen here. And then in walking to his home, Simon, who it seems has been away for some time, if we track with chapter 1 and what's happened at this point, he learns of a very ill family member. Look at verse 30. 
This is the third part of our passage today. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, there it is, they told him about her. I think it's pretty significant that this immediately follows for Peter. I can relate to this. I don't know about you. Maybe you too. Peter has just witnessed the miraculous. He's just witnessed the supernatural. He has got to be riding the world's biggest spiritual high. But the circumstances and the difficulties of our lives can bring us quickly from the spiritual mountaintop to the deepest, darkest valley. Do you know what I'm talking about? And sometimes it doesn't take much. We can be with God on the mountain in his presence, worshiping him. Let me give you a clear illustration of this for you to get what I'm saying. Maybe in your car, you've got both hands raised. No, hopefully not. You've got a hand raised in worship, and you're driving down the road, and you're singing your favorite worship music, and you're just with God, and then some bozo comes in and cuts you off and almost causes an accident. All of a sudden, you know, that verse that talks about out of the same mouthful praising and cursing, it becomes very applicable. <laughs> it doesn't take much, does it, about our circumstances, or in this case, a loved one who's ill, to take us from a place where we feel we are so close to God, and now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we're down in the deepest valley. If we let them, if we let them, circumstances, do this, they certainly can. So how does Jesus respond to this need? And, and Mark is so quick about things, isn't he, as we study through this? And he's so fast about how he describes things. And sometimes I, I, do, I do wish he'd give us more detail. Mark, help us here. But so quickly, Jesus comes in, and what does Jesus do? And, and he came and took her by the hand. The mother-in-law who he's talking about. He came and took Peter's mother hand, mother-in-law by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Now, there's a bit of humor there, I think, but Peter witnesses the, the power of God. Peter witnesses the power of God in his home. He had just witnessed it out in the community. But now the power of God has come into his own house. I wonder what that meant to him. Jesus heals with a touch. He demonstrates not only his authority over sickness, but also in this same act in touching Peter's mother-in-law and raising her up. He demonstrates compassion. Authority with compassion. Gentleness. Now, we would be lying if we didn't see some humor here because this dear older woman uh, coming to her senses after being relieved of her fever, begins to serve. Uh, maybe she realizes, I'm conjecturing a little bit, maybe she realizes that there's no meal to serve their guests. And so she quickly goes from a fever to a panic. <laughs> Ladies, I, now come on, work with me here. You know what I'm talking about. And, and, I, and I picture this, I'm, I'm, again, I'm conjecturing, but maybe it's because I've been watching the Chosen, you know, video series. I have all these other things floating in my head. But I'm picturing this scenario, right, of Peter's mother-in-law saying to her daughter, 
Why is there no food to serve the rabbi? (laughs) And Peter's wife is like, "Uh, Mom, I was a little concerned about you. Sorry. (laughs) Right? So she flies into this panic, though, and begins to to serve. And I think that's a beautiful, fun part of the story. These two miracles, though, seem to have created quite a stir in Capernaum. And that's how we end the passage as we get to verse 32. It says, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now, this is probably hyperbole. Every Bible scholar I looked at said, yes, you know, using a word like all in the whole city. Capernaum was big. It was a big city. And, and so probably not everyone in the city was gathered outside Peter's door, but it paints a, a picture here for us. As in verse 28, Mark is giving us a picture of this growing popularity that Jesus has at this time. How does Jesus respond to this crowd? With compassion. Compassion moves him to exercise his authority. Let's look at verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And that ends our passage for this morning. So, church, we're going to see next week that Jesus was not interested in being famous among people as a miracle worker. He's going to leave this crowd. These thousands or how many ever people who are crowded outside of Peter's door, he's going to leave them to go proclaim the message of the kingdom to other people. He's not interested in the crowd. He's not interested in being known only as a miracle worker. And also we see in verse 34, if you look at it, that Jesus wasn't interested in the endorsement of demons, like we had said before, even if their testimony was true. I think there's a point for us in that. Let us never partner with the enemy, even if it would seem to be to our benefit for a season. There is no fellowship, brothers and sisters, between light and darkness. Well, how should we apply God's inerrant and authoritative word to our lives this morning? I just have one statement for you to consider. It's this, by faith, with the authority and the compassion of Jesus, let's fight for the people of our community. By faith, with the authority and compassion of Jesus, Let's fight for the people of our community, for our families, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers. Let me very, very quickly take you through four key words in that sentence. Faith. Read Hebrews chapter 11 when you get home. If you take notes and you're writing stuff down right now, just write down Hebrews chapter 11. Read it at home this afternoon. Or go back and listen to Pastor Ken's message at the end of February on a Sunday morning where Pastor Ken preaches on this very idea. By faith, great things happen, church. By faith, great things happen. And Jesus promised that his followers would do great things. Look at that amazing verse, John 14, 12 on the screen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. This is Jesus talking. He says, in greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What did Jesus say? He said, by faith, 
we, us in this room, will do greater things than he did. By faith, great things happen. Dr. Daniel Aiken, forgive me. Dr. Daniel Aiken writes this. He says, demons are expelled. Broken people are made whole. This is God's kingdom. This is what the great king can do. This is why he should have absolute authority in your life, my life, and every life. The second word I don't want you to miss in that sentence is authority. Paul makes it crystal clear that Jesus is already victorious. We talked about this. But the verse on the screen for you there, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has authority, and Jesus has given us authority. Look at these words by Dr. N.T. Wright. He says, when the church learns again how to speak and act again with the same authority, we will find both saving power of God unleashed once more and a similar heightened opposition from the forces of darkness. Similar, but not the same. The demons knew Jesus and knew that he had come to defeat them once and for all. They can still shriek, but since Calvary, since the cross, Dr. Wright is saying, they no longer have authority. To believe this is the key to the Christian testimony and saving action in the world that despite its frequent panic and despair has already been claimed by the loving authority of God in Jesus. Church, may we learn to walk in the identity and the authority of Jesus Christ. Third word. Sorry, I'm trying to be quick on these. Compassion. Compassion. Do we have authentic compassion for people? Do we have authentic compassion for people? Do we care about the people in our community? And and let me just say on this, maybe for many of us in this room, we need to pray that God, by his grace, gives us genuine compassion for people. Maybe that's where it needs to start with us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we don't care as much as we should. Do we have an authentic compassion for other people? And that brings me to the fourth and final word that I want to point out in the sentence, and that's the word fight. Fighting is not bad. Brothers and sisters, we need to fight. But know that our fight is not with people. Our fight is for people. What a difference one little word makes. We are not fighting with the people of our community. We are not fighting with the people in our families, with our coworkers, with those who see things differently than we do. Our fight is not with them. We are not fighting with them. They are not the enemy. We are fighting for them. We are fighting for the people of our community. Amen, church? That they might know Jesus, his love, his salvation, and that they might be brought into his kingdom. And so who is our fight with? I'll close with these words from the Apostle Paul who wrote this. He said, for we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Would you bow your heads, please?
close your eyes. Worship team, come on up. It was time to quit. I was making multiple babies cry. So I knew it was time. If you take nothing else away this morning, take away that idea, please. Our fight is not with people. Our fight is for people. By faith, with the authority and the compassion of Jesus, let's fight for the people of our community. I would encourage you even right now, brothers and sisters, just think of one person. Let the Holy Spirit bring into your mind even just one individual. It might be a child. It could be another family member, a brother or a sister, an aunt, an uncle. One person. It might be a coworker. Maybe it's someone who's in the same office you're in and you know that they're still lost in their sins. It might be your neighbor. It might be a friend that you have years now of relational investment with. And, and maybe, I'm just throwing this out there, I don't know if it's true or not, but maybe you found yourself fighting with them because you see differently than they do on any number of issues. Can I challenge you this morning? Your fight is not with them. Your fight is for them. Let the Holy Spirit bring to mind that one name, that one image, that one person, and begin to pray for compassion, that you would be willing with the authority and the compassion of Jesus to fight for them. May God give us the grace to do so, that we would become the church that he wants us to be. Fellowship, I've shared this with our leaders here. I believe that this is our moment. I don't say that lightly. But I believe that the Lord has told me that the next few years here at Fellowship are going to be very significant. This is our moment. What we do right now is going to really matter. And so let's fight for the people we love. Let's fight for our friends. Let's fight for our coworkers. Let's fight for our neighbors. Realizing that very seldom are people argued into the kingdom of God. Maybe it would be better for us to close our mouths for a time and listen and to let them speak and to learn where they're coming from. Maybe we need to pull out the big guns of love and prayer and just love people and pray for them and to wait for that opportunity where God gives us that perfect moment to share the hope that we have in us through Jesus Christ. If the Lord is speaking to you right now, my prayer for you is that you'd be willing to listen.